0: Uh, this is the first of our interview episodes for 2022. Very exciting to be back after a great break uh, and a, an exciting guest to kick off the program for the year. I have with me Daniel C. Uh, now, Daniel is the author of the award winning Spacemaker How to Unplug, Unwind, and Think Clearly in the Digital Age. He's a productivity consultant, runs courses for people all around the world. Uh, with some pretty cool names I was hearing you, you explain before we went to air, Daniel. The, uh, the email ninja, how to help people get their inbox back to zero. I know plenty of people who could use that, in, including myself. Uh, but you've done some really great stuff in the in the space of productivity and very interested to hear your own journey, how you got there, and, uh, and how insecurity relates to productivity because I'm sure there's great overlay. So, Daniel, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, you're based in Tasmania. It's uh, a beautiful part of the world. I've been there five times. The, the most recent of those was doing the Franklin River rafting expedition uh, for the full seven days uh, last year, so it's a beautiful part so of the world. has been on my
1: bucket list for a while, so uh, well done for getting there before me and I live here now. <laughs> yeah, right. How long have you been in Tassie? Uh, about 15 years. Yeah, it's mm. a beautiful place to live. Yeah, it, it is indeed.
0: A uh, good place to run a business from?
1: Yeah, well, uh, it is now, uh, I, I think with the online world, opening up opportunities, I can work from home and you know coach in Melbourne and the U S you know, London, and I can still live in this tiny town where I can ride my bike to the center of the city in eight minutes, you know, so it's, <laughs> it's paradise, but I don't tell too many people that because I don't want them all to move here and ruin it. But, um, you know, I'm very thankful for being able to run an online business and then some local stuff.
0: Yeah, great. Uh, and the climate is it? Is it? Uh, how do you how do you find the Hobart weather?
1: Yeah, look, I'm from Adelaide originally, so I used to love the warmth, and I I still like warm days. You know, we had a I think a 28 degree day here last week, and everyone was saying it was so hot. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. You know, so <laughs> I do love warmth, but. I love the four seasons in Hobart. It actually feels like life changes and it keeps things interesting. And as long as you've got a warm house and, you know, you put on the tassie tuxedo, which is the, you know, the ugly black puffy jacket that everyone wears, Well yeah. then, you know, you're fine in the middle of winter. The tassie tuxedo. I haven't heard the that tazzy The tassie tuxedo.
0: Yeah. The Katmandu puffer jacket. Yep. That's great. Uh, all right. So we're going to
1: talk about insecurity and hear a bit about your journey. But before we do that, what's a productivity consultant? Yeah, interesting. So I used to be a physiotherapist. That was my training originally. And, you know, I remember having, you know, you do four years of study, postgraduate study, you know, you get accreditation. I did a decade of that. And then I decided to run a productivity business. And uh, my business partner and I said to each other as we set up our LinkedIn accounts, what do we call ourselves? And we kind of said, how about productivity consultant? And so that's what that was our job. And all of a sudden, I had a new career. Uh, but a productivity consultant, you know, now, uh, now that I know what it actually is, uh, I basically help people think deeply about their why, about why they do what they do, uh, to make space. I'm passionate about helping people make space uh, in the whirlwind of life to think and rest and breathe. And so it's not about just being organized and being efficient. That's uh, you need you need to have basic skills, but I think it's about knowing your why, knowing why you exist and what you want to achieve, and then having very specific skills and habits and rhythms to allow you to orientate your time around that. Uh, so that's what I do. Wow,
0: that seems like a beautiful line of work, and it must feel pretty meaningful. Oh,
1: I love it. I yeah, I I love it. I am someone who wakes up every day and thinks, wow, I get to just do what I enjoy and somehow get paid for it, which is great. Um,
0: All right. So tell us where it started then for you. Give us a bit of the backstory. Uh, With all my guests, I'm fascinated by where they started and specifically, uh, you know, we're talking about insecurity and for you to be doing the thing that you feel born to do and designed to do, then you have to have a level of confidence and certainty about yourself and your position in the world. So can you tell us a bit about... Um, growing up in your family and the role your parents played on your sense of self and, and kind of how it was mm. for you growing up in your own skin and whether you felt confident and, and uh t- tell us a bit about the backstory
1: yeah no no problem so i'm i'm half chinese my dad's from shanghai Mum's you know dinky die aussie I, I was brought up and um in adelaide uh so it's interesting My my parents uh, I was thinking about this, obviously for this podcast, my, my parents loved us and uh, I knew I was loved. You know, mum was very emotionally affirmative, uh, affirming, I'm sorry. Uh, dad wasn't, but he provided and I actually value that more and more now that I'm older. I just, I see that that was his way of loving, uh, but they didn't love each other that well. Sometimes they just were completely different, absolutely in every way. You know, dad loved the city. He loved gambling. He loved eating out. Mum's like an environmentalist, you know, who lives lives on a farm now, you know, completely different people. Uh, And so eventually they they got divorced when I was uh, an older teenager. Uh, But yeah, I certainly remember times where we would um, have patterns where we did connect as a family, either holidays, so holidays were really special. uh, And also times around the dinner table were really special, so uh, we would just, we would always sit and eat at six o'clock together. We would talk. Uh, sometimes we'd fight, you know, it wasn't idealistic, but, uh, at least we had that kind of pattern where we connected and actually interacted before, you know, dad went off to play mahjong and Mum went off to do a thing and we all went off to do our own thing. Uh, and I think that's, that's played into the way I see life and habits nowadays. Uh, but I, interestingly, to, to run a business, you have to be fairly confident. You Mm. need to have a certain amount of self-assurance and risk taking, especially in a field, like you said, where no one even knows what a productivity consultant Mm. is. Uh, and I wasn't that at all as a child. I was very nervous. I was very risk averse. Uh, I was, uh, as a teenager, very judgmental and very judgmental on myself. And, and uh, I remember, you know, I had a nervous twitch. Uh, You know, mum sent me to hypnotherapy when I was pretty young because she was worried about all my twitches and nervousness and and fears and nightmares about wanting to die in a Holocaust, you know, so it's interesting to see myself now and compare myself when I was a child and uh, yeah, I'm I'm grateful for how life has turned out so far.
0: Uh, Wow. Okay, so can you can you give us a bit of the process of going from the kid who had the twitch and had the dreams the nervousness and uh, fears to how it was that you faced those things and developed confidence what is the stuff along the way that um, made a difference for you in becoming the man you are
1: today Hmm. um yeah look i mean this is a bit of a strange story but i suppose it's my story i i remember at a young age, and I don't know how old, probably about 10. Uh, and, I, and I did really have a lot of fears and nightmares and things like that. And, and this is a spiritual story, but I I just remember this this weird set of experiences where I just felt some type of spiritual being or like angel or something, I had no idea, you know, but just be in my room and, and almost kind of just touch me. And I remember feeling warmth and I probably described it as love mm. uh, and I know it's a very unusual experience, but I didn't think it was unusual at the time. You know, I think about it now I'm like, wow, that was weird, but, <laughs> but it was just this friend I had, uh, mm. and it happened a few times and it started to me, it started me thinking, I suppose it just started me thinking that things were spiritual and it also started me, uh, off on the contemplative journey where I started to reflect on what does life mean you know what's my day mean what's my purpose you know there has to be something bigger than i see at school uh, so that's probably the first step that started to challenge my worldview. view um and another story i was thinking about obviously reflecting <laughs> i've listened to your podcast for a bit uh, i remember when i was about 14 i went to universal studios in america that was one of our family holidays and uh, and I, I, particularly remember this one incident, <clears throat> which is so strange, but, uh, you know, at the time ET was a big thing and that, you know, blue screens and gray screens were amazing. Yes. Yeah, Superman could actually fly and, yeah. and it looked like he was kind of flying and they had this bicycle, this ET bike, and I think it's Elliot used to ride it. And, uh, and, and the, the person said, who wants to be Elliot and, and fly over the moon? Uh, with the green screen behind them. And you'd be able to see yourself on the movies. And he said, is there a 14 year old boy in the crowd or someone around that age? And Mm -hmm. I was 13 and like 10 months and I desperately wanted to do it. But as I said, I was a nervous kid and I was fearful. and, And, uh, and dad was like, come put your hand up, put your hand up. And I'm like, I want to, but I'm not sure. And then, uh, some other kid put his hand up and went up there and I saw him kind of ride his bicycle with the music and he was, you know, Elliot and you saw him go over the moon with ET. And I just felt so sad that I didn't have the confidence to do that. And I actually reflected on that for ages. And, uh, I, I, suppose I realized that, uh, I had really high expectations of myself, I was fearful of risks and, and I, I was really reluctant to try new things. And I actually made a decision in my heart that day that actually If I want something, I'm going to go for it and I'm going to give it a go and I'll I'll put my hand up so I get to be Elliot. You know, I never got to do that, Um, but it's, there've been times all, all, all of my life past that time where I'm like, no, I'm, I'm worried. I'm anxious. I could stuff this up, but I'm going to give it a go. And I put my hand up and I remember that incident. Uh, and I think that's become a habit, which has really served me well.
0: Yeah. Well, so that stuck with you from that day. You, you said yes the things
1: yeah well it was the start of a process you mm. know obviously you don't go from being yeah. fearful and risk averse to suddenly taking large risks but it was the start and it started to i, I suppose i recognized my tendencies and i wanted to overcome my insecurity
0: mm. yeah well so then did then your spirituality um you know the, f- the first or that sense of of something outside of you showing love and mm. um as you Contemplated on that. What sense did you make of why you were having that experience? What did what did that mean for you?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's funny because even as a kid, you don't ask those questions. You know, it's just like, wow, this is really this is nice. You mm. know? I wonder when I'll have another experience like this. It wasn't until I was older that I think I started to ask the question. You know, what was this experience mm. and. Uh, so I, I'm now a Christian. I I became a Christian. I come from a Christian worldview now. So that probably shaped how I interpret. I'm still not sure what language I'd give to it, but I, Mm. I do believe in a, you know, in God and and I believe in the spiritual realm, I suppose. Um, and, but certainly my faith has shaped who I am and how I see the world. Uh, but, but in very practical ways. So, I mean, for example, another, another example of when I was really nervous is my first job. Uh, so when I was 15 years old, I got my very first job, it was in a deli. And all all I had to do was stock Coke in the fridge (laughs) and like cut up salami. It was pretty simple. (laughs) And I was terrified of it. Uh, and the boss was this huge guy who was an ex cop and he had these bags under his eyes, so we always looked sleepless. And every time he spoke to me, I just felt like dying. Cause I just, I was very book smart. I've always been good at school, but I was just not life smart and I had no practical skills whatsoever. I mean, my dad couldn't even change a light globe. So I had to learn that stuff later in life. Um, so, so I got fired from that job really quickly and it, it set me back for years. I got fired from my next few jobs because I was so nervous and worried. Uh, and I couldn't actually hold down a, you know, a paid job until I became like a, uh, I think a pizza driver in uni, uh, simply because you know, no one could see what I was doing and it wasn't as scary. So that was kind of where I came from. But in terms of the, the the question about spirituality and how it played out, uh, dreams have always been really important to me, mm. uh, you know, like real dreams, not, you know, Martin Luther. <laughs> King yeah, yeah. dreams. And um, and I had a dream when I was uh, a physiotherapist. And again, I was terrified. It was my first job as a new grad physio. I was in Bendigo Base Hospital. The physio is what, what you were
0: studying at uni. Uh,
1: yeah, I studied at uni. So this is years yeah. later from that 15 year old. And again, I was terrified, you know, I remember going into the toilet between patients just so I could gather my wits together enough to just go back out and treat another patient. Every day was terrible, you know, and I I would go to the chapel for half an hour before work and just pray. But literally it was like, please help me get through another day. Because I had so, I just felt so worried and I used to judge myself so much on my performance. I was worried about how other people would see me. So, I had this dream one night during that period. And in the dream, I was back as a 15 year old in this, you know, deli, which I was freaked out about. And it was a huge line. It was a hot day in Adelaide. And and everyone wanted me. And I was the only person in the shop. And I was serving. And then one lady came up to me and she said, I want pancakes. We don't serve pancakes (laughs) at that deli. And I didn't even know how to cook pancakes like in real life, you know, let alone in my dream. But I I said yes because I had to. And, and I started to make up a recipe, you know, I, don't, I put water in and eggs and milk. I kind of had a bit of an idea. I cooked these pancakes and they were almost right. And then they turned bright purple. And I was just, I totally freaked out and I'm like, I can't recook them. I don't know what to do with them. So I, I served the lady, these purple pancakes and she tasted them. She said, they're purple. And I said, well, I know, but she said <laughs> they're fine. And then she walked away and I woke up. And I know that doesn't sound significant, but for me, it transformed the way I I worked and how I felt about myself, because uh, I realized that um, you can make a purple pancake, you can make something that's kind of all right, and you can make stuff up, and it actually works out fine. And until then, I was so worried about how other people would judge my actions, my performance, my skills. I was still reluctant to try new things. If I wasn't a hundred percent sure about them, I would read, you know, I'd want to read and study and know everything before I gave something a go. And I really felt, you know, for me, it was God. I really felt that this dream was saying, you need to start making purple pancakes and, and that from that day on, I just was like, okay, uh, it's better to give something a go and to do it, you know, half baked, but to just do it and not fret because. You got to make a purple pancake and it's going to turn out okay and uh, that really changed how i started to live and act and similar to the et story i suppose it's that sense of not judging myself that giving something could go is better than not trying at all and actually it's all right if something turns out purple <laughs> because you did it and i'd rather pat myself on the back even if i stuff up because i was taking a risk and and living how i was meant to live I don't know if that makes sense, but it, do, you know, it, it was does it does make sense because helped me.
0: It does make sense because uh, one of the ways that I talk about insecurity is as an as an opinion problem. And uh, it's useful because I most of my work is dialing down the angst around insecurity problem mm. and people feel like it's a monster. But if it's just an opinion problem, well, opinions are the easiest thing in the world to change because they're the lowest form of knowing anything. Mm-hmm. So we develop opinions about what's true and what we can and can't do. But then you have a couple of experiences that go, well, hang on, maybe that opinion, maybe there's a movement in that, maybe mm-hmm. maybe there's a, a different opinion that could be formed, and it's still an opinion. But then you go and act on that opinion, and it it changes your experience. You go, well, that opinion is better than the last opinion, and then that be- that opinion becomes more true, and so, and then you start to orient yourself differently in the world, and. And then one thing leads to the next and you grow in your confidence and your opinion becomes to change all the time. So
1: definitely. Yeah. So you change your mindset, you know, in that sense, it was like, okay, if I do something and it's not perfect, I used to judge myself and think I'd done a terrible job and wonder if people would judge me or if I'd get fired, uh, but you're right. The change of opinion would be like, no, well done. You made a purple pancake. Mm. (laughs) And then because of that, you're right. I could do more. I could take more risks. I could extend myself in areas where I'd make more stuff ups. Uh, and then because you have successes in those areas, it snowballs and your actions change your mindset and your mindset changes your emotions. So it's all connected. I, I think that's what we're yeah, saying. It's a, that's exactly a what I'm saying.
0: Mm. And I think whatever it is that becomes a catalyst for changing opinions, um, you know, moments of grace in life where things come across our path, a dream, an interaction, a person, a book, uh, an accident, an incident um, that stops us and takes us back into our opinions as an opportunity to go, what if there's another way of thinking about that? Like uh, <laughs> whoever God is and whatever God is like, uh, surely that is that is God at work, giving us yeah. an opportunity to change our opinions about ourselves and our world. No, definitely. To, to revisit no, that. I'm, not...
1: I'm, I'm sorry, Jamin.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: um, no,
0: I don't know what I was going to say. So you go if you can still remember your thing.
1: <laughs> I I've got excited. I, I, I apologise. Uh, I, I I heard a um a guy recently talk about what's your fence post story, right? And, and what he meant by that is you know he's talking to to guys I don't know. So he's trying to use you know more blokey analogies. But uh, he talks about your life being like a bunch of fence posts. You know, so I suppose moments that shape who you are and how you understand the world, and that certainly connects with the way I see my story. Uh, I've, I've recently journaled, you know, my life, I suppose up to 18 and I've done a bit of journaling beyond that, but, but really I remember my, my life in moments that had significance and that were a heart moments or, you know, like you said, a dream, a conversation, a book, uh, mm. a positive or negative experience and all of them have shaped who I am because mm. I've been able to stop and reflect on them, uh, and actually find the meaning in those moments and then change my mindset and behaviors as a result of them. Um, in fact, we do an exercise with people where we get them to, in, in my consulting work, where I get people to get sticky notes and use a, 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 um, like a colored sticky note for positive experiences, maybe a red one for negative ones, write down significant people or moments or events that have shaped their life. Um, this is in my book, uh, and then, and then map out your timeline, you know, put them in chronological order. Mm -hmm. And then try to work out the chapters of your life because generally there are kind of large chapters if you know i'm in my 40s so by then i had i think i found eight chapters Uh, but then what are the key lessons and experiences and and um, reflections you have as a result of those chapters that then guide you in terms of your future values because you might have values but if you can't articulate them and if you can't assess whether they're helpful or not helpful then it's hard to Move forward from where you are to where you want to go based on your history. Mm. Uh, so again, I think it's that that idea of fence posts or moments or or um yeah, aha uh-huh moments, I suppose that shape you.
0: It is, but uh, you know, in your book, you talk about contemplation a lot, and we we've been discussing that before. So I'd like to, to hear more about that. But that, to me, seems the missing piece. We all have defining moments, and they all shape us. Um, but we when we're young we have such a limited capacity to make sense of those we come at them with immaturity with a small worldview with you know limited emotional intelligent intellectual resources so those defining moments uh, are, are going to shape us in a very small way the contemplation piece is the ability to go back and review the data to go back and have a look, is that still how I'd like to think about that experience? Is there any movement in that? Could that opinion around that experience be changed? Because that that to me seems like the central role of the adult human being to free the child from um, immature opinions around the defining moments. Mm -hmm. I would say that sums up the majority of my coaching work is facilitating that contemplation, that review work to say, it's an opinion problem and yeah you will have formed opinions at defining moments but can you change them well sure all you need to do is change them is just have a look at them because just looking at them you'll see more than you can see now more than you could have seen back when you first saw them um so tell me tell me your understanding of contemplation and how how that works for you and then how you see that working for others in your in your work
1: Yeah, sure. So I would say I was a contemplative person before I'd even heard the word. Uh, And for me, contemplation is as simple as, you know, I think silence and solitude is a good word or a good practice. It's simply about removing yourself from noise and removing yourself from people. And, and trusting that if you do that on a regular basis, you will end up starting to reflect. I mean, it's, it's not a given. You still have to be willing to do the hard work and, and to face the uncomfortable thoughts and emotions that come your way. Uh, but I think it actually starts by having that space, if that makes sense. Um, and so by the, by the time I'd hit my 30s, uh, I definitely had intentional patterns and rhythms of contemplation. So for me, it's going uh, swimming or walking or um, or riding my bike without you know earphones in. So I, I do that intentionally because I like to move and think at the same time. Uh, what I found is I was thinking about my stroke and counting my laps, for example, when I was swimming, but then I realized actually I need to be using that time to think, not just exercise. And so I just decided I oh, will just count time. I know that I do about a K in 20 minutes. I don't need to count my strokes. I'll think, you know, and it's that intentional thinking in silence that really made a difference. Uh, I would have longer periods of silence where I would have a quarterly retreat to reflect on my work um, or I'd have even longer periods where I'd have a week away. So I've certainly built in those regular patterns in my life. But what I found uh, post you know, 2007, 2008, Uh, Once the iPhone kicked in and everyone started to be online uh, all the time in terms of mobility, I found that those those, those spaces of silence started to be taken over in my life with text messages and emails and eventually social media and a whole lot of other stuff. And I realized that for all of us, contemplation now needs something other than just the ability to think you actually need to do something differently with your technology because all the pauses and all the gaps will be taken up if you don't intentionally create space from them, which is actually where the book came from. It was about how do you actually make space in the digital world so that you can enjoy the online world uh, when you're working and when you're doing what matters, but, but actually create space where you can do the inner work. Because I actually think we're gonna raise a generation of people who actually can't uh, reflect very deeply because they've shaped their mind in, in sound bites and whenever there's a gap they'll pull out their phone and listen to other people's opinions think other people's thoughts instead of actually really thinking their own thoughts and i think that's a real problem for us and and for the generations to come
0: uh yeah i think it is a problem having having teenage kids in the in the midst of that watching them go through that experience and seeing how to parent that and challenge their assumptions that that's how it's supposed to be um it's a big deal too. Uh, I'm, I'm curious what you've discovered around why people don't make space. So uh, it seemed very logical. It seems like it makes sense. You make a very great case. But why why don't people do this more intentionally? What stops them?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's a few reasons. Uh, I mean, I think partly it's the reasons that have always been there. When you stop if you're someone who's gone and gone and gone and and doesn't ever stop to leave space and to reflect deeply, then uh, stuff builds up. I remember chatting to a politician uh, and a friend and they said they they go and go and go and they know if they'll stop, then they'll get depressed. You know, I think that's often the way they were conscious of the fact that their overwork was a strategy to avoid the things that would stop them from getting depressed, you know, but so I think there's a sense where if we stop, we can experience the the painful thoughts and emotions that we haven't dealt with. Uh, and that stops once you have space regularly. But at first it's really hard because you haven't dealt with who you are or you haven't processed your experiences. Um, but I think an extra layer in the digital age is that we are just using tools that are designed to to suck up every moment that we can use to reflect. Uh, and I remember originally I thought all I needed was an ebook to teach people how to turn off their phone once a week for like a, I call it a digital Sabbath or a digital day off so that they can build relationships and contemplate and rest and invest in stuff outside of work, uh, to turn off your phone at the start and the end of the day. So you don't begin and end with a screen and to have a digital free meal, uh, maybe to exercise sometimes without a podcast, you know, some very basic practical habits. But in coaching and spending time with execs, I realized that actually the problem isn't that we don't know what to do or that it's that there's something that draws us to wanting to fill ourselves with the online um, spectacle that that just that is a heart level thing. It's, It's about identity and it's about relationship. Uh, so the book actually spends the first third talking about our paradigm of technology and how it changes our neuroplasticity, how it shapes the loves and longings of our heart, uh, how it, it it intertwines with our cultural story about what is freedom, that freedom means no limits, and choice, that more choice is better. You know, if we don't examine the things that cause us to want to grab our phone and gravitate to constantly pulling out our phone when we're on the toilet or when we have a moment with our kids, then just having practical tips won't cut it. You actually need to change your heart and relationship with the online world, your paradigm, before you can actually then unplug. And and that's what I've discovered in terms of contemplation.
0: Well, no wonder you won the best, best business book award for personal development and the best technology book. Um, it seems like an extraordinary contribution. Uh, and, th- and this is why I'm really keen to talk to you because I think this, to me, feels like an interplay between insecurity, like the heart stuff you're talking about, um, in my way of thinking about the human condition, it's be- because we feel like there's something wrong with us um, and that is unresolved. We either run or we hide. So we fill our life with stuff that stops us being found out, stops us facing the things we are afraid of. So, so the technologies serve us well to avoid... The, the the terrifying experience of coming face to face with our fear um mm. so so then it seems like a really important interplay that that to really make space <coughs> the, there has to be a, a confidence that insecurity can be faced without it consuming you
1: yeah um, and there's almost like this double play that that you need, to, you need to find a way of examining your relationship with technology and why you gravitate to it so much, uh, including the design of the technologies itself, which, which goes against us, uh, and then learn to switch that off in order to make the space. But then you have to tackle the fact that, well, now I have to actually, what do I do with that time? And I find silence really uncomfortable, and now I have to learn to actually process the things that I've been avoiding. And mm. then you can enter the other side where you just adore space, where you just mm. love being by yourself, where you can sit and look at a tree and just be and, and feel at peace. But there's a bit of a journey to get there if you've never started that way, and, uh, and, and that can be challenging. And I think of research uh, in the States. There's a guy called Timothy Wilson who did this fascinating group of studies where he got people to sit alone in a room by themselves for six to 15 minutes, and he asked them just to do nothing, but reflect on their thoughts. So this is exactly what we're talking about. And he found that universally, the majority of people did not enjoy it. They said it was a painful experience to be alone for six to 15 minutes in silence without a phone. Uh, and, and that was even in their own lounge room where it was a comfortable place. Uh, and and then he started to do the strangest thing he started to zap or electric you know, zap people with painful electric shocks uh, which were so painful that the participants themselves said that they would pay $5 not to have it, have it happen again he put them back in the room and this is the first time that that group had been there and and did the same experiment but this time he put a little um a zapper in the corner of the room and said i don't want you to zap yourself but you're welcome to if you don't you know if you're not enjoying the experience or that's what you want to do to distract yourself and he found that i think 67 percent of men and 20 something percent of women chose to you know give themselves painful electric shocks rather than spend 15 minutes alone with their own thoughts mm. and i think that's the culture we've created and it takes a bit to unwind that and learn to adore being and sitting and resting and knowing yourself. But if you don't do that work, like you say, insecurity uh, will destroy you. If you don't do that inner work, you're living an outer life. It's a pancake life, you know, wide and thin, uh, and it will eventually catch up with you.
0: I agree. I, I think it's it leads to madness. I don't know whether you think that's too strong a word when you look at the way that we live um do you think madness sums up this well i mean zapping yourself electricity rather than listening to your own (laughs) thoughts that seems (laughs) madness is the only word to describe that yeah uh community so contemplation and community tell us tell us more about your take on community and why that's a really important part of this conversation
1: yeah so in terms of insecurity i would say they're the two pieces that have really been helpful for me obviously through through examining my spirituality uh and they seem opposite you know spending lots of time with people versus spending lots of time alone but if you look at the research both lead to health and happiness and i think we need to be able to balance both almost like two sides of a coin uh so for me i i mean i look i went to vanuatu years ago on a leadership development retreat and spent two months in a village and I came home, looked at Aussie culture and realized, wow, we just have no idea what it means to have relationships with people or have extended family or to live in a way that is communal, where you share things in common and actually have the back of others and they have your back. We make decisions so autonomously. We we live so individually in the way we think and act, uh, even in families. And that really challenged me. And... You know, I remember talking to uh, the leader of the village and he'd been to, he spoke English. He was one of the few people who did. And I said, what did you think about Australia? Because he'd visited it before. And he gave me three things that he thought were weird. But one of them was that uh, he thought it was really strange that in Australia, we put little fences around our houses. And he said, you must be very scared or protective of your stuff. And, you know, a fence, it's so natural, but I can't, I couldn't help after that but see every single fence and think what are we doing this is mad like why are we so protective of our stuff i mean i understand if you need to keep a dog in but most of us just have fences just to say this is mine yeah and the rest is not and and so we wanted to live a life without fences and uh you know metaphorically but even even practically i ended up building a house with another couple uh and uh, sharing land and they architecturally designed houses Um, We're professionals, you know, we're not hippies, but we share land and and gardens and life together, eating together every week uh, with us and now the neighbours and other friends um, in order to create a sense of community. But we designed it without fences because we wanted to communicate, you're welcome. You know, we want to have permeability between our lives and yours. Um, Yeah, and and the research in community is incredible. I, I think people are constantly misunderstanding the value of community when you look at the longitudinal research about what makes you live better or live longer or makes you happy uh, it almost always relates to in-person relationships and I talk about this in my book uh, compared with social media and the effect of social media versus in-person community uh, in fact neuroscientist Susan Pinker suggests that um, building meaningful regular relationships with people in your life face to face uh, is at least as important for your health as giving up cigarettes, uh, dealing with hypertension, fighting diabetes, breathing fresh air. I mean, the results show that out of everything you can do, even more than exercise, people live longer when they have relationships that are meaningful. It's the way we're wired. And if you want to live a life that isn't, you know, racked by insecurity and anxiety, I believe you do need to form relationships with people in a face-to-face consistent way, Um, because it it changes us Mm. even, even women with breast cancer, for example, there was a study that showed that when they connect with people who they love, uh, genes turn on that, modulate the disease and help them fight cancer. And it doesn't happen for people who don't have people face-to-face in their lives. So we are, we are inbuilt wired to be in warm bodied relationships, but we're losing that. And that's another technological issue that we have to deal with.
0: Wow. Uh, that's profound so yeah a real paradox between being alone with your own thoughts and reflecting and reviewing your data but but also doing that in the context of community and connection and vulnerability allowing other people space in our own world without defending and protecting and isolating and
1: oh yeah one of the one of the biggest things i've learned in community and this is a challenge for me it's a challenge i think for us uh, is to i suppose submit to the patterns of the community rather than think you have autonomy over your schedule so what i mean by that is um we don't get community very much because we just don't create consistent patterns where we're with the same people again and again whereas we said every wednesday night we're going to have dinner whether we want to or whether we, we don't. I'm an introvert. I really find it hard to have dinner with 20 people, uh, but it's a commitment I make to community. So I give up the autonomy of my own schedule to do that. Uh, and if you can create patterns and rhythms where you submit to the rhythms of relationship and everyone does it, well, then you can create something incredible. Um, and I, I think it's just really important that we can even learn to give up our own decision-making. Um, we now check with our community if we want to, you know, make decisions like build a new, you know, do a renovation, or um, go on an expensive holiday, you know, we check those decisions with our community to get their wisdom, and it's just saved us a world of grief. But but that level of giving up autonomy and independence for interdependence, that's really rare in our society. Um, and yet I think it gives you a lot of security and wisdom and health as a person.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, I love that term interdependence. And The first place I came across it was Stephen Covey talking about the journey mm-hmm. to maturity, going from dependence to independence to interdependence, and that's always stuck with me because if you don't go through the waters of independence, you end up with codependence and they're very mm-hmm. dysfunctional communities that kind of suck the life out of each other. Interdependent communities are adult relationships where you're free to give and receive. Um knowing that you are already okay yourself you've kind of gone through the process of reconciling who you are and what you believe about yourself so you come to the community full rather than needy and desperate
1: mm.
0: is that how you uh, think about interdependence do you have anything other to add on on that having the experience of interdependent communities
1: Yeah. Look, my only thing is I just think it's really hard to do. I've been trying to work at this for years, like for decades, and I still find I just make decisions so independently. Um, we just, we're just trained to be independent, autonomous thinkers. And there's some beautiful stuff with that. I mean, I love that in our culture, I get to choose what job I do, who I marry, where I live. I mean, there's nothing wrong with, uh, independence uh, or individualism, I suppose, but, um, yeah, it, it does take practice i mean even, even a marriage is essentially it, it has to be interdependent if it's going to work you need to give up your right to go to drinks on a friday night without checking in mm. you know or when you have kids you know you give up your right to sleep in and to pretend you're sleeping instead of going and changing the nappy you know um but but in in the, the trade-off of giving up your autonomy is that you experience this richer better life interdependently mm. but you can broaden that to a community level And, you know, when I even think about how insecurity has changed in my life, I, I'm not sure I'm not an insecure person anymore. I I don't experience much insecurity. uh, But I think if you took away, if you took me out of my community, then I think I would be insecure again, Mm. but I have a bunch of people that back me and that I can back, um, you know, and, and vice versa, you know, we, we had a, um, a person die in our community recently, um, and, uh, just because they had a need i I put you know out um like a gofundme page you know please help this person and we raised a hundred thousand dollars in 10 days there's a lot of security and knowing you've got the relational capital to back you financially physically spiritually emotionally when you're in trouble and you're not just an isolated unit that has to rely on your super Um, i I think there's something about interdependence that actually creates security uh, which i need Others may not, but I certainly do.
0: Thank you for sharing that. Uh, we talked about our love of books before we recorded. Have there been books along your journey that have been pivotal that you recommend or give to others? Um, what, yeah. what books do you love?
1: Yeah, Um This will sound very cheesy, but look, the Bible is really valuable to me. Uh, I think the teachings of Jesus are transformative. They've been misunderstood and misrepresented, but gee, I'd pick up the gospel and read it. Uh, you mentioned Stephen Covey. He transformed my understanding, probably led me into the productivity realm. So seven habits of highly effective people is still a really, it's, it's, it's aging, but the principles are brilliant. Yeah. Uh, what else? I read a book called second mountain on my retreat last year, and that was excellent by David Brooks. And I'm in my mid forties, you know, having another midlife life crisis. I think I've had them all my life. And, uh, and he talks a lot about how the first mountain is one where you need success, you need a certain level of achievement and you need to go and get stuff and make it happen. Uh, but to succeed in the second mountain, you need to let go of success and let go of the habits that got you where you got to so that you can enter the inner life and experience a richer life and Mm. i thought it was really well written and i've I've been reflecting on that a lot and using that as a framework for how i think through my current journey so there's some three things i really like
0: Mm. okay fantastic um anything else that you think would be really important to cover that we haven't shared uh, about the interplay of of insecurity and productivity and to leave with the listeners
1: I've done a lot of talking. Probably, probably not. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I, well, no, I think terrible, that's it, a terrible answer to conclude. That not that not I a terrible answer
0: with. at all. It's a wonderful answer because it's been a very rich uh, and meaningful conversation. I just wanted to give you the the final word. If there was something that I hadn't asked you that hadn't enabled you to, hadn't made space for you to, to share what was yeah. on your heart. Well, my uh, but,
1: final word is it's a work in progress, mm. I think. you. Um, I definitely couldn't say that I've mastered insecurity, but I've, I'm definitely less insecure than I used to be. Mm. And, uh, and the, the things I want to pursue in life and the relationships that I care about are not negatively affected by insecurity because I've had the ability to do the hard work, uh, to, to contemplate, to examine my life and also to, to join the lives of others in community. And they're the best strategies I know of to help me, not so much manage it, not like you're managing an addiction, you know, it's not kind of trying to suppress insecurity, but just to recognize that actually, if you took me out of my patterns and my habits and my community, then I think I'd be quite insecure again, Mm. but that's why we orient our life in a particular way and, you know, graciously and, and thankfully it seems to be working for me Mm. and, and I'm sure others you know might experience something similar.
0: Well, thank you for the work you've done in your own inner world and for the work you're doing in the world today. Um, this book is a significant contribution and uh, yeah, the online courses as well, no doubt, w- where can people find firstly, the book, where, where's the best place for them to get a copy of space maker?
1: Uh, so look, if you go to my website, spacemakers.com.au backslash book, there's free chapters, um, downloads and links to all the different book sites, uh, but you can get it as an audio book on Amazon or audible that it's an ebook, you know, you and I, I know we love paper copies. Uh, I'd recommend the paper copy. We put a lot of work into the graphics and you can buy a paper copy, you know, at booktopia or book depository or, you know, a lot of bookstores.
0: Great. Uh, and your online courses, where, where can people access, uh, email ninja?
1: Yeah. Look, email ninja.com.au will get you there again. You can watch some of the videos and buy the course, uh, it's also on New Demi. Uh, if you're interested in, you know, making space in your inbox so you can think a bit, the heart of email injury is not that you become an, you know, an email kind of guru. It's that you you create patterns and systems so that you can do email well, but get away from email to focus on what really matters. And mm. so they're really strategies to help you not spend too much time on email.
0: Yeah, great. Uh and the best place for people to find you, where do you hang out online when you're on when you're on there?
1: Uh well I like the new Sydney Hotel in Hobart, so you might see me there. But um online, uh yeah, probably just spacemakers.com today all all our contact details are there if you wanted to contact me personally. Great. Uh
0: thanks for a wonderful conversation. Appreciate your time. We'll leave it there.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having me, Jamin.
0: You've been listening to the Insecurity Project Podcast. All you need to solve any problem is the proven framework and someone skillful enough to hold you in the space until it works. If this is your year to be insecurity free, jump on the insecurityproject.com and begin your journey to become unhindered by getting a free copy of the seven essential practices for overcoming insecurity.